Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts. We're looking at chapter 9, verses 10 through 25. Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 25. In this passage, we're going to see a very significant life change. And we all know about life change because we all go through life change. There isn't anybody who doesn't experience significant life change. Just growing up and entering into new stages can be very significant, right? First time you walk to school as a kid. I remember first grade walking, walking to school, walking blocks away in West Chicago to get to uh, Pioneer Elementary School. That was, that was a big deal, right? And uh, maybe the, when you go into middle school, right now you got lockers, right? That was a big deal. I've, I've got one of my kids going into middle school for the, for the first time. Lockers, big transition, more freedom, more responsibility. Uh, you know, going, going into high school, going into college. One of our kids is going into college this year. So like, these are big changes. You get married, that's a big life change, right? Your world is different. It's a different way of living and being and doing. Marriage is a big, beautiful thing, but it's real change. And if you have kids, then it's another big change. It's a new way of living and being and doing. And this is just a taste of what we're seeing in this passage because in this passage it's the most significant kind of change of life change that anyone ever goes through it's the most profound change that we experience in Jesus and it's not just an internal change of our hearts which is at the at the very foundation of what's happening here but it's a change in our whole lives in fact we see it happening in Saul also known as Paul And here's what we're going to see in this passage. It's very simple. Jesus gives us, that is everybody, not just the apostle Paul here. Jesus gives us a new community. He gives us a new message and he gives us a new life. This is what every believer has in Jesus. A new community, a new message, and a new life. Now, just to set this up, let me just set the stage in case you weren't here last week. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, uh, Saul of Tarsus, this, this rabbi, this leader, this, this powerful leader among the Jews is persecuting Christians. In fact, he is going to the city of Damascus to round people up. He's been doing recon. He wants to find out where are these Christians? Do, are they making disciples? Are they, what are they doing? Because he wants to find them, charge them, arrest them, and punish them. So he is trying to destroy the church, but on his way to Damascus to do this harm, he encounters the risen Lord. He actually encounters Jesus. Jesus, in a sense, opens up heaven to confront Saul and say, hey, why are you persecuting me? Saul is blinded, knocked off his horse, and in this moment, when he's confronted by the risen Lord, he is converted. He becomes a believer He's changed, born again. In this moment, he's changed. He's blinded. And he is then commanded by Jesus, listen, keep going to Damascus, but now I'm changing your plans, right? I want you to go to Damascus, uh, and I want you to stay there for a while. Just wait for my instructions. And so Saul goes. uh, He's led by the hand, by the people that are with him, because he can't find his way there. And there he is kind of stay, he stays put for three days, can't see, he fasts. And he prays. 
And so what we see today is this transformation that Paul really goes through in his life. We're going to see Saul's new community that he becomes a part of. We're going to see Saul embrace this new message that is now his to share. And we're going to see his new life overall, what his new normal looks like. It's very different from his former life. So first of all, we see Saul's new community in verses 10 through 19. So follow along. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose, was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So when you, when you look at this account here, right on the front end, you find out where Saul went. So he, he goes to Damascus and he winds up staying at a guy's house, right? Judas, not that Judas, not the Judas who's, he's, he's dead. He committed suicide, not the betrayer of Jesus. Judas was a common name. So he's staying at Judas's house on a street called Straight. He's on Straight Street at Judas's house, praying, fasting, not seeing. That's what he's doing right now. He's waiting on the Lord. And so this is where he's at, and he has this vision. The Lord comes to Saul in a vision, and he sees someone named Ananias is going to come and heal him, give him his sight back. I mean, this is, to me, this seems terrifying, right? Maybe this is going to be what the new normal is for Saul. Uh, maybe he's thinking, like, am I, never, am I ever going to get my sight back? Well, now he has this vision. He's going to get his sight back. It's going to be a miracle. Somebody named Ananias is going to show up. At the same time, Ananias, another common name, right? Uh, Ananias has a vision from the Lord. And I love, I love how, he, how engaged he is. Like Ananias, Ananias is cool. Ananias is ready, right? Because he has a vision, and when, when Jesus says to him, Ananias, he doesn't go, ah, like, which is what I would do. Uh, he says, Ananias, and he goes, here I am, Lord, I'm ready. Like, I love that. Like, that he's faith ready, wants to obey. He's oriented. It's just, it's super exciting. So he says, uh, he says, here I am, Lord. And he says, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the street called Straight. I want you to go to Judas's house and look inside. There's a guy praying in there. His name is Saul. He's, he's from Tarsus. Uh, I need you to go and uh, give him his sight back. All right, I want you, to, I want you to lay your hands on him, heal him. And all of a sudden, Ananias is like not quite as eager. He's like, he's like oh, yeah, yeah. If, I know Saul. I've heard of Saul of Tarsus. I know that reputation because he is the boogeyman. Everybody knows who Saul is. This is the guy that's been hunting down Christians. He's been given authority here to get our information, find us, arrest us, charge us, uh, prosecute us. Like this, this is the bad guy. This is the enemy of the church. If we have an enemy right now that we can 
put our, point our finger at, it's this guy and you want me to go to where he's staying and help him. You want me to serve him. So yeah, I, I, I get, he's, he's not saying no. He's just talking it out, right? And I was talking, I was like, okay, so let me just think through this. You want me to go and help the boogeyman? Uh, I, I don't know. And, uh, and so what Jesus explains to him is like, no, listen, I have a plan for him. I have a plan. I, I'm, I'm setting him apart. He, he's going to make my name known. He's going to specifically be instrumentally used to, to bring the good news to the Gentiles who don't even have the scriptures. So go, because you are going to play a part in my getting him ready to go. Jesus' plan for Saul is for him to not just be a convert, not just be a disciple, but to be an apostle. And this is, I mean, this is, this is significant. He, he, he goes from being the persecutor of the church to an apostle of the church. So Ananias goes. And Saul this is his first real experience of Christian community. Saul is received as a brother. You can see it in verse, uh, in verse 17. And Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus whom you saw sent me to give you your sight back. But he doesn't, he doesn't come in suspicious, right? He doesn't come at him and go like, I don't know. I don't know. He's not hostile. You know, he's not like Jonah right, mad that God's sending him to people that he hates. Ananias comes in and he, he says, like, you are now my brother. You were my enemy. You wanted us all dead and gone or quiet, but now we are in the same family. We are one. So Saul is received as a brother. In verse 18, we see that he's, he's healed. It says immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. So th this is actually a description of what happened. It, the, most scholars, when they write about this, they're saying that it looks as though like these white scales or flakes or skin fell from his eyes. Like he rubbed his eyes and these things are coming off and he can regain his sight. There's no serious technical description of what's happening here. It's very general, very basic but Saul went from being genuinely unable to see. These scales fall. It's not a metaphor. These scales fall away. Now he can see. And the first thing he does, the first thing that he does is he gets baptized. This is the, the, the most instantaneous thing he, he wants to do, which is significant because this was a guy that was looking for those who were baptized. His job was to find people who have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, find them, figure out if they've been promoting this religion and then punish them for it. And now in verse 18, it says, then he rose and was baptized. It's the first thing that he wants to do. Listen, today it's not a big deal to get baptized culturally. You could tell the most... You could tell most atheists, uh, agnostics, people from other, other religions, like, hey, listen, I got, I'm getting baptized this weekend. And they'll be like, hey, good for you. All right, man. Yeah, do your thing. Do your thing. Get dunked. Get wet, man. That's cool. Like, like who cares? Just what are the consequences? But in the first century, to get baptized is to not only identify 
with Jesus. It's not, it doesn't just mean that you are united to him. It does mean that. It doesn't just mean that you've been cleansed from your sins. It, it means that. It doesn't just mean that, that you have been buried with Christ and raised in a new life. It means that. It also means that you are declaring sole allegiance to Jesus above every other leader and philosophy. That Christ is your king, your God, and you will obey him rather than man. And this put the disciples at odds with the culture around them. And it meant persecution. It meant difficulty. It meant a lot of pushback and pain. But Saul's ready. This is his new family. This is his new community. And really, the first thing that you do to enter into that community, really formally, is to be baptized. And so he is. He's baptized. He breaks his fast. He, he begins to eat again and, and, and celebrate this new life that he has. Baptist, this is a very Baptist thing. You get baptized and you eat. Like that's, we still do that today. Baptists like to, you get baptized, go out for dinner. Let's get, a, let's get a buffet going or maybe some cake. You do some kind of eating after you get baptized, typically as Baptists. So Saul does that. And then it says in, in verse 19 that he spends several days resting, probably being prepared for what's next, but also having fellowship. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is big. He's hanging out with, fellowshipping with his new community, his new family. Saul is now a disciple. He was seeking to destroy the church, and now he is a disciple of the church. He is now a brother. He is becoming a leader among the very group that he wanted to extinguish. You remember Acts 2, 42 and 43 when we were there? The early church would gather together in homes. They would gather together and they would devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and to prayers and to the fellowship of the saints. They would devote themselves to these things. Paul hated these things, but now he is embracing these things. He is a part of it. This is his new community, his new family. This is a radical shift for him. His old community is now secondary to the new community. He's still a citizen. He still has relationships. But now the church becomes his primary community. And this is true at the principal level for all Christians. All believers have a new community, a community of faith. Now, some of us were blessed to be raised in the context of the church. And so we've always understood Christian community, while others of us have to enter into it later in life. And it's a very weird thing. It's a very strange thing. But regardless of when and how you're converted, every believer, every disciple has the church as his or her new community of faith. This is our family. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, the Apostle Paul, right, Saul, he says this, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. And here he's driving the point home. Listen, when you become a Christian, when you're born again by the spirit, you're brought into the family of God. And it doesn't matter what your background is, what your race is. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. We are all one. We are all part of one family that is then expressed in local congregations around the world. Paul makes this point again in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Here, we'll read a little bit more, starting in verse 3. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he should think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Part of this is don't just think of yourself as an individual, particularly relevant for us 
as Westerners, as Americans, because we love the individual. We like to think of ourselves as number one. We all like to do our own thing. We like to let our freak flag fly, right? We do our thing, which is fine. Great, be an individual. You're such an individual. We're all such individuals. Um, but really, our identity as, as Christians is not just that we are saved, but that, but that we are saved. God's people. So here's what he says. He continues in Romans 12. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Like, when we are disciples, we are made a part of the body of Christ that makes us members, not members like you're members of Costco. We're members of Costco. I love going to Costco. Uh, we're, we're not members like we're at Costco. It's not like member of a club. We're members of a family, right? So we are adopted into the family. We become the children of God. You, you remember this from John, John's gospel, John chapter one. And as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave them the right to become children of God, like born of the will of God, right? We are born again into this family. Or first John, Chapter three, verse one. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is why the world doesn't know us because it didn't know our father and it didn't know his son. All believers have this new community. This is where we find our people. For all of the alignment and allegiances we can have in the world, and those are not necessarily bad, our fundamental alignment and community is found in the church. So Saul has a new community, just like every Christian does, and Saul has a new message. We see this in verses 20 through 22. And immediately, he's baptized, he's having fellowship, he's hanging out with the church, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul has a new message, very new, very different. Saul begins to preach. Now he's already a teacher. He's already a scholar. He's intimately acquainted with the scripture, the Old Testament. But whereas before he was persecuting Christ, now he begins preaching Christ. And he's, he's using his understanding of the Old Testament to show people, to prove, it says, to prove that Jesus is the Christ. His new message is what? He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. I was persecuting Jesus, but I was wrong. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the seed, the promised. He is the one that will defeat the devil who establishes a kingdom. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is God in the flesh. He is the Son of Man that we read about in Daniel chapter 7. That's his message. Jesus, his new message is Christ. And he goes to the synagogue. Why does he go to the synagogue? Because that's where the Bible's at. He goes to the synagogue because that's where the Bible is at and that's where the Jews are at. And what do they do in the synagogue? They read the scripture. 
They discuss the scripture. They debate the scripture. And so Paul, eminently qualified to open, then to read the scroll and to teach it. So he goes. He uses his gifts, his knowledge, his abilities. He goes into a context that he understands. People that really are primed and ready in theory to receive the good news. And so he goes and he begins to preach. And Saul's reputation begins to change, right? He's known, like, whoa, whoa, this, this is the guy that came here to destroy the church. We all knew why he was here, but now he's backing the church. Now he's a part of the church. Now he's, he's sharing in that message. I mean, he's a, he's, he's a part of them, and he's now actually beginning to lead. Totally unexpected. And I love, I love that it says that Paul grows in his preaching because this is true for everybody. We tend to think of, I don't know, maybe you don't, but a lot of us tend to think of Paul as like a super saint, right? He's a super saint. Like this guy was super godly. He never did anything wrong. And he was always preaching. After all, he wrote the Bible. So obviously, you know, listen, Paul didn't write scripture because he's smart and godly. God used Saul or Paul to write scripture supernaturally. So the idea that, that Saul is a super saint is wrong because he is no more of a saint than you or I are. We are all saints, holy ones in Jesus Christ. And so Saul was a mess like every other sinner saint. He had conflict with his, his brothers in ministry. He struggled with sin. He sometimes hated himself for the corruption that existed in his life. But he was faithful as far as he was able. He was godly, though not perfect. And he grew in his preaching. You see this? Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So he was getting better at preaching. Listen, Paul was not the great preacher. A lot of us think, like, well, he must have been great. Paul literally bored people to sleep while he was preaching. I think I did that in first service, by the way. He bored people to sleep while he was preaching. We'll read about it in Acts. Uh, guy fell out of the window and died listening to, listening to him preach. Paul, literally, and Paul like writes scripture and like a lot of the stuff that he says is just like hard to understand. Like Peter's like, yeah, sometimes Paul says things that are... I don't even know what he's saying, basically. Saul, Paul, Paul, gets, Paul gets into the weeds sometimes. So he wasn't this perfect, eloquent preacher. He was just faithful, used by God, empowered by God. We praise God for Paul. But it's a demonstration of what God can do with any of us. Saul's message changed. Now, what is he preaching? Well, it, he's preaching scripture. Let's note that. He preaches scripture. He unpacks the scripture. And, but what is he preaching specifically? He's preaching Jesus. Now, listen, Paul has to address a lot of issues when he's writing these letters, right? Because he talks to churches about specific situations. So he has to address sin issues and practice issues, practical issues. He has to address all of these things. So he has a lot of knowledge. He has a lot of wisdom and insight. But his fundamental primary message, the flag that he waves, is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. That's his message. He's proving from Scripture that Jesus is the Christ, the one that was promised. This is his message, and this is the message of every church and of every believer. All believers have a new community, and all believers, like Paul, have a new message. The message of the cross, the preaching of the gospel, is not the job of pastors and elders alone. It's not the job of deacons and evangelists it's the job of, and responsibility and privilege of every follower of Jesus. We are given, collectively, we, the church, are given the ministry of reconciliation and the message of the cross. 
And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verses 17 through 21. We go here a lot, we, especially verse 17. It's one of my favorite verses because, oh, in Christ we're new. And that's what we're talking about today, how we have this new life, new community, right? New message and new life in Christ. And we oftentimes think, well, this newness is really just about like a spiritual newness in our hearts, but it's much bigger than that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the ministry imperative for all of us. We're all given this message. You've been made a new creature to live a new kind of life. And one fundamental aspect of our life is to be a people that bear witness to the ministry of reconciliation that God is reconciling sinners to himself and he uses us as the means by which he makes his appeal to a lost and dying world. We all have a new message. And I think it's, it's fair to ask, so what is my message? Like, what is my message? I don't mean what is your message supposed to be. Our message is supposed to be Christ and him crucified. But what is my message? Like, what is the message that people hear from me or you? I mean, if you were, if you were to ask people that know you, like if I was to ask people who know you, hey, what's their fundamental message? What are they, what is the most important thing? If they had one thing to say, what is it about? What, what, is, the, what is the thing that they're most passionate about, right? And there's a sense in which we're going to have different passions and interests, right? Some people, you know, like, uh, like goat yoga or whatever, like Oliver Bougedet does goat yoga or something like that. I don't know what you do, Oliver, you do something like that. Um, it, we, other people do like, uh, like triathlons, right? Or maybe you're into like model trains, right? Or, or, or cooking or whatever it is. Like we have these things that we're passionate about. And maybe we talk about those things. But if you were to ask somebody like, hey, what is the most important thing to them? Like what is their message, their life message? What's their philosophy? What do they really believe? What would they say? Do they know? See, I think all Christians would say, like, I, I would hope we would all say, hey, listen, I do have a message and we're all going to share it in different ways, right? Some of us are called to be out front, always talking. And so we're doing a lot of this. Other people are going to do it in, in, a, in, a, in a more casual way, in a more relational context. Totally fine. It's all going to be different. But I think we would say, yes, I do have a message. And the message is God loves sinners and saves them through Jesus. Okay, so do people know that though? Do people know that that's your message and why not? See, what we're talking about here is something we used to talk a lot about back in the day, evangelism. There used to be a lot more evangelism conferences, right? Evangelism networks, evangelism initiatives. We don't talk about it as much these days and, I, and, 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 and myself included. And, and I wonder, is, is that because, you know, we're spiritually cold and apathetic or is it because we just don't believe it's really our responsibility. Or maybe we just have this whack idea that like, you know, God doesn't really need me. See, there's a sense in which it's true. God doesn't need you. 
but he chooses to use you. And by opting out, he doesn't use you. And the gospel is more restricted in the sense that it's not going out to as many people. Saul has a new message and every Christian has a new message. And now Saul's new life, we get to get a peek at Saul's new life. Saul has a new way of living and being. It's not just a new community that he gets to chill with and identify with. It's not just a new message that he gets to speak. He has a whole new life that is radically different than his former life in verses 23 through 25. It says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Well, look at that. I remember uh, my dad used to say to me all the time, because I would like smart off when something bad happened to somebody, or I'd laugh at someone's misfortune. My dad would say, uh, what goes around comes around. And so just like, listen, if you're joking around, playing around, bullying somebody, like, just, just know what goes around comes around. You know, it's what the Bible says, you reap what you sow kind of stuff. Well, Saul is, Saul's life is in danger now. The guy that was behind the execution of Stephen is now in danger of being executed. Many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. I love it because it is very undignified. This is not, this is not how you leave the city. This is not a baller move, right? I'm going to walk out of the city like a tough guy. It's my new identity in Christ, man. I don't fear death. Like, you know, to, to die is gain. Let's go. Like, it, it's not, listen, he doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to be murdered. He, he wants to preach the gospel. So he does what Christians oftentimes do. He hides in a basket like a little kitten and gets lowered down, down the wall. There was a house on a wall over the city and they could get out that way. He had to get out this way. Saul becomes the persecuted. So he hides, he runs, he, he escapes because he wants to preach the gospel. He wants to reach as many people as possible. Doesn't care if it's, if it's not dignified. Doesn't care if it's embarrassing. Doesn't care. That, listen, all he wants to do is he wants to make as much ground as he can, covering as much ground, talking to as many people as he can to make disciples because he wants others to know this gospel truth. This is Saul's new normal. People want him dead. They will disrespect him. They will dismiss him. They will seek to kill him, and eventually they will. See, the Christian life is, is a different kind of normal. It's different from the world because we, we have different values and a different perspective. We have a different way of living and being. We live in this world, but we are not of this world. We have a different, a completely different mindset, worldview, and understanding. All believers not only have a new community, not only have a new message, but all believers have a new life. It's at 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. But that new life in us embraces the whole of our lives and leads us into a new way of being, of doing, of actually living. And the new way of living, right? I mean, you could simplify it and say, well, it's a life of faith and repentance. It's a life of faith and obedience. So what does this new way of living look like and how is it different from the world? Very simply, let me just say this. It's a life of humility and repentance. The, the new life is not one of perfection. Uh, it's not one of worldly victory, but it's humility and repentance, recognizing that we are sinners prone to wander, prone to fail, and God loves us anyways and extends to us grace so that we can be reconciled to him and have security with him, to have life and access to grace that actually is progressively changing us. The new life is one of humility and repentance. 
It's one of forgiveness and love because we've been forgiven. We extend forgiveness to others. We love, right? Not as the world loves. We don't just love our friends and our family or people that are on our team. We love our neighbors that we don't know and our enemies who we do know who hate us. We love. We dwell in community. We don't live as individuals for ourselves. We live for other people now, if particularly in the community of faith. We worship we recognize that our triune God is everything and our lives are meant to be lived for his glory, for his pleasure, and in that we find pleasure. We live lives now, a new life of normal where evangelism is understood, at least it should be understood by all of us to be the regular practice of the church. Whenever God gives us the opportunity, we testify. We have a new way of fighting. Yes, you have to fight. You can't live in the world and not fight in a variety of ways. We have to fight. But as Christians in particular, the primary way that we fight is with words, right? And we fight with the, the word, the word of God. We fight for souls. We fight a spiritual fight. We fight against the attacks and the temptations of the devil, the schemes of the devil and the world. We fight against these things, not with violence, but with words and with the word of God. Every Christian lives a new life, a different kind of life, not a perfect life. We blow it up sometimes and God forgives, restores, gives us grace to continue. Jesus gave Paul a new identity, a new community, a new message, and a new life, and every Christian has this. A new community message and life. We have these things because salvation is not just for you. It's not just for me. It is not just for us. It is for as many as the Lord will call to his son. And he calls people to the son through us. He makes his appeal through us, through our community, with that message exemplified by a life of faith and obedience. So we want to encourage you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, can you see your need for a savior? Need for the forgiveness of sins, where Jesus takes your guilt and shame upon himself and gives you his righteousness so that you are made forever acceptable to God. See, God loves you as a sinner, but saves you and recreates you to be a saint. So look to Jesus, and for those of us who know him, we should all be encouraged to turn ourselves, right, continually to lean into this new way of being, of doing, of living, of speaking, and dwelling together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us, that you would lead us. Lord, if we need to be convicted, we want to submit to that, but we also pray that you would lift our heads and encourage us would excite us about the new life and message and community. We pray that you'd cause it to grow, this community, that we would see others come to believe just like Saul and become useful to you, more useful than any of us even, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.